0: We all love the Python language, but it's the 200,000 plus packages that actually make Python incredibly useful and productive. But installing these packages and even installing Python itself can vary across the different platforms. In particular, Windows has had a hard time. Many of the library authors don't use Windows, and so they don't test their packages on that platform. Tutorial authors often start their tutorial steps by activating a virtual environment, That's great. That's the great first step, but it is usually source venv slash bin slash activate, and that doesn't work on Windows. Yet over 50% of all developers programming in Python do so on Windows. In this episode, we'll welcome back Steve Dower. He works at Microsoft and is a Python core developer. He has a bunch of statistics around Python and Windows for us. He also has tons of good news on how Python and Windows is getting much better. This is Talk Python to Me. Episode 243, recorded on location at Microsoft Ignite in Orlando, Florida, November 8th, 2019. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy, keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm, and follow the show on Twitter via at TalkPython. Hey everyone, Michael here. I'm excited to tell you about our latest course. Yes, we just released one a week or two ago, but here's another. This time, it's a nine-hour course called Python for the .NET developer. The idea is if you have experience with C Sharp and .NET and would like to get better at Python, we'll take a bunch of common applications from the .NET space and recreate them in Python. For example, we'll take a data-driven web app in ASP.NET and Entity Framework and recreate that in Flask and SQLAlchemy. This means you can take all the concepts and ideas that you know if you're a .NET developer and quickly transition to being an effective Python developer. Are you the sole Python developer at a .NET shop? Maybe your team or coworkers could quickly use their .NET background to get up to speed on Python to make it an important part of your tech stack. There's even a For My Team button. Just click that and enter the number of team members you have, and you'll probably get a discount to boot. I was also just a guest on the excellent .NET Rocks podcast with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. If the idea of the Python for .NET developer course intrigues you, just visit .NET Rocks.com? show equals 1665. The heroes discuss this from both sides of the technology fence. So check out the course at talkpython.fm/netdotnet and convert those C sharp skills to Python skills. Now let's go talk with Steve. Steve, welcome back to Talk Python to me. Thanks for having me back. It's great to have you here. We're recording. On location here at Microsoft Ignite. So uh, a lot of fun to do that at the conference here. Yeah. Is this this your first time at Ignite? It is my first time at Ignite. How have you found it? I've been a couple of times. but <laughs> I am very surprised at this place, to be honest. So to me, big conferences are PyCon, Microsoft Build is a pretty big conference. This thing yeah. is like six times, seven times as large as those. It's the scale is crazy. This is 30,000 attendees at least on the first day. I feel like it drops <laughs> off. We're, I we're on, don't think there's 30,000 today. <laughs> we're, we're on the last day. It's kind of quiet. Yeah, it's it's way way more quiet, but yeah, I actually found it really nice. I've made a lot of cool connections and, and met a lot of people. I've met a lot of Python people, even uh, here run into cool. some some folks. So, I'm finding it to be a cool event. He had an interesting person come up and ask you about your laptop. Oh yeah, yeah. So, it is <laughs> the mix of the audience. It's not really a developer crowd, right? It's it is sometimes it is a developer crowd, but it's it's also an IT crowd. It's a SharePoint crowd. It's a DevOps crowd. It's a cloud person. There's like all these different like all the computing IT folks brought together. So I was sitting around actually getting ready for this interview to talk with you. I was taking some notes about what we're going to talk about. And this guy comes up next to me. And he's like, "Hey, that's a cool Surface Book you got there. <laughs> I don't think I've seen that one before." I'm like. It's really cool, but it's a MacBook, not a Surface, <laughs> <laughs> Surface Book or Surface Laptop or whatever he called it. So, yeah, it's just, it's really funny. And I think that actually is, it's an interesting angle to what we're going to talk about today.
1: Yeah, it's, it's such a different crowd here compared to the Python conferences where, where we'd normally hang out. I feel like, yeah, I feel like I've invited you into my house for this one. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've
0: come to visit you this time, not the other way around. That's right. So, yeah, I think at PyCon, non Windows computing or development is pretty common and here like like no joke they are, they were mistaking my my mac for a windows <laughs> machine and like oh well i only do c sharp i'm like okay that's cool yeah i know c sharp too but now I'm, I'm doing python over here right now you know things like that and it's yeah it's cool to be part of these different communities
1: and it, it has been really exciting to see the change at ignite over the years and build in fact because yeah. they are very different communities but the the growing python that's showing up in them I feel like the first or second time I was at Build at Night, which would have been oh, twenty fourteen or so, about five years ago, people were asking, you know, "What's Python? Why are you here?" Yeah. Are you <laughs> which is,
0: you know, Why, what are you doing at our conference? Why did right.
1: you invade it with your open source weirdness? <laughs> right, exactly. It's like what's 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 your angle here? <laughs> and it's like, and they were kind of suspicious. And now it's at the point where where I actually had someone come up to me yesterday and say. You know, because I was here, because I was actually here and saw everything going on. I I now want to learn Python, and that I mean I've never heard of that happening at
0: <laughs> at, at the Microsoft conferences before. But that's really yeah, exciting. It's that's, super exciting. Yeah, it's, it yeah. is exciting. You know, I don't know. Maybe they saw some kind of machine learning presentation or something. They're like, wow, that. I thought this was a scripting language. Look what they're doing. Yeah, we, we
1: had a lot this year. I think two years ago, I was the only Python presentation at the uh-huh. entire conference,
0: uh, which was... <laughs> and there's a lot of presentations at this. That's like a very small percentage, right?
1: There's like, I don't know, we, we, have, we have this huge screen behind us with about eight sessions running in parallel, and that's just this end of the rebroadcasting. There's probably <laughs> like 15 tracks or something crazy yeah. going on. Yeah, yeah. But, but no, this year we had like 30 or so sessions about Python. And yeah, ranging a lot of machine learning, a lot of data science, uh, a lot of app development stuff. Uh, it's yeah, we're covering a lot more angles now,
0: and it's really exciting. Yeah, it's super cool. It's not exactly what we're talking about today, but we'll talk about it at some point in the future. You gave a really interesting talk on Python security and, and plugging that into like operating level security, right? Maybe, yeah. maybe talk really quickly about some of the stuff that's coming there and what you talked about. I kind of like move from project to project that I'm working
1: on. The, one of the biggest things I've been working on recently is getting auditing hooks, which was PEP 578 into CPython. So that and released in 3.8? That released in Python 3.8. Okay. And now it's time for me to go around and, and teach everyone what you meant to use them for. <laughs> <laughs> because cause it's like they don't actually do anything on their own right now. It's, it's just a way of raising low-level events from inside the runtime. So you can, you'll get notifications from the socket module every time it connects to a socket or every time a file gets opened, every time c types gets used, all of the stuff that you really want to know is going on, but Python doesn't really give you a way to see it. And so the security applications of that are essentially logging. You want to collect all that information and, as I said in some variants of the talk, uh, build a haystack of every single event so that when you figure out there's a needle in there, which is someone attacking your systems, then you've got a chance of figuring out what they were doing. At least you have a record of it. It's not just like, well, it's hacked into. Nobody knows why. Right. It's like, oh, I know we got hacked because people are buying our customer database off the dark web. It's
0: like, yeah. And honestly, I think a lot of customers find out they were hacked by saying, I only gave this email address to this. You know, they do like the plus thing, like such and such plus, right? name or or whatever at gmail
1: or you get one of those emails it's like i know your password and here it is (laughs) you're like
0: how did they get that yeah yeah yeah. well (laughs) that speaks to a whole another level of badness (laughs) you know just i recently had to like sign into a bunch of a bank accounts i'm trying to consolidate just some like retirement boring stuff but i finally broke down and like said i have to do this so here i go and i tried to log into the bank there was some workflow where i created an account and i used a 30 character randomly generated password then Mm -hmm. i couldn't log in again. And I kept getting like an error too long sort of thing. And they were saying, well, the password has to be 16 characters or less. And, you know, the hash of a password is always the same size, no matter how large the input so, what are they doing with that password if they care about the length of it? I, I'm
1: <laughs> not going to speculate on that one, but it's, not, that, it's probably that may, not good. That may not be where you want to consolidate <laughs> all of your retirement savings. I was trying to get away
0: from that place, so I feel <laughs> all right about that. All right, so, but what you were talking about with the, the Python stuff is there's really interesting hooks that you can plug into for like compile or evaluate or like execute code. There's, there's a bunch of neat stuff that you got going on, right? Yeah,
1: and that's one of the really scary things that Python can do that, that most other tools installed on your system can't do is you can obfuscate the command line. And so you can pass in uh, the example I showed was like a big fat base 64 string wrapped up in a little bit of decoding and eval uh, to dynamically essentially decrypt code and run it without anyone actually being able to see what it is. And so you, you don't know what it's doing until you go through and decrypt it. The sample I showed then went off and downloaded more code <laughs> off the internet and decrypted that. Yeah, because once it
0: started, then, then it's trouble.
1: Yeah, and so being able to hook the compile event every time a bit of Python code gets exact or evaled, you, you see what's going on. And it's really hard. People have tried to you know sandbox Python and, and just take those things out, and it turns out that doesn't work well. Firstly, because you need them for a variety of things in the, in the language and standard library. And it's, there are other ways to, fi- to work around that and to still yeah. compile code. So this way... You don't block it hard, but you get to see everything that goes through it, and then if something bad does happen, at least you know about it.
0: Yeah, it's, it looks really positive, and you know I don't want to talk more about it, because that's not really the topic of the show, but that was- Let's do that, that one later. Yeah, we'll do that as another show, but that's what you were here talking about, and the audience was full, right? Like People were really interested in this. Yeah, there's a lot
1: more security-minded people here. Uh, I did run around and do a quick survey, or just a quick chat with everyone who was attending, and it was a really interesting- What was the mix? Diverse crowd. It was- Equal parts, developers, security administrator, IT management. Uh, it was a pretty good spread across all uh, the roles that would be interested in, in managing
0: where and how Python is used in the setup. Yeah, yeah. the people asking questions afterwards were like, I'm not a developer, but I have to sort of oversee the execution and protection of this stuff and so on. So help me, help me understand how to do that with Python. That's pretty cool. All right. Now, let's talk about Python and Windows because it's okay, actually. Yeah, it's Okay. Yeah, actually, yeah, (laughs) that's awesome. You know, (laughs) when I go to a lot of conferences, and especially I think PyCon falls under this banner, you walk in and it does feel like most people are on some kind of Mac, or maybe they're running Linux. Like, there's some Windows folks there. There's you know some Surfaces and whatnot, but it doesn't seem to be very doesn't seem to be the majority, does it?
1: There are more and more Surfaces, which. We're very excited about, but yeah, yeah the, there is always an army of glowing fruits staring back at you while you're speaking to that crowd. <laughs> That's right. They just stand out mocking
0: you there <laughs> with a little bite. Yeah, so it feels like, it can feel like to a lot of Python developers, and especially I think the most relevant audience is the people building Python packages, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, so it is certainly the most popular platform, that that and Linux for for the people that are building the open source stuff that we know and love and rely on. And I think what's really interesting is that that's about the only data point that really looks like that. It's a bit of conference bias, I think, as we see at Ignite as well. It's biased in the other way. Yeah. And just through that kind of selected audience, you're going to see a certain set of people. But the, the problem with that and the problem with kind of all, you know, diversity type topics is if that's all you
0: see and that's what you believe reflects reality right right how would you know otherwise exactly it's not exactly the you know the same thing but uh scott Hanselman, also from microsoft has a really interesting saying he did a blog post on dark matter developers are you familiar with this idea yeah 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 it's that there's a whole bunch of folks out there who write code they go to work maybe they work at some big company They're, they're not so passionate that they're on twitter all the time right they're not going to conferences or the meetups they just you know they're happy programming they do their job and they go home and they're not blogging, tweeting, podcasting about it. And that world probably looks a little bit different, right? Like what those people need. But it's still, they're a really important consumer and user of programming languages.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I've met quite a few of those developers yeah. in, through visiting like any of the big companies or financial institutes at, like in New York. I've gotten to meet some of those guys. And it's like, yeah, they show up in a suit. And yeah. then they go home and they stop thinking about coding completely yeah. for, for the night. And and that's
0: fine, right? Like, if, if that's one of those. Oh, it sounds that.
1: great. I wish I could stop thinking about coding at night.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know, exactly. Exactly. So, let's talk about that. So, it feels like conference reality is like, I don't know, 70% Mac, 15% Linux, 15% Windows. But then, in your um, presentation you did at PyCon, you talked about, well, that might be what the like, survey around here is, but let's just look at the numbers. Right, the real numbers. Yeah, so... So uh, what I are went, some of the numbers?
1: Yeah, so I went and tracked down. There's a, there's a few data sources that, that everyone has access to that I went and looked at, and there's a few that, that I managed to uh, speak to some people individually and, and get some numbers out. Uh, PyPI is a great source of who's downloading various packages, and so I pulled that one up and checked out checked out a few... Uh, packages. There's no easy way to kind of query the whole thing, and it doesn't right, right. doesn't really make sense to do that. It doesn't make any sense to measure like PyWin32 or
0: something like that, right? Right. PyWin32
1: <laughs> is is doesn't get installed very often on Mac, no. oddly enough. If it tra- uh.
0: only f- badly, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, I I tried to look at the ones that get installed everywhere, and it and it turned out that it was roughly you know majority Linux and and roughly equal Windows and Mac, which already is saying okay, this is different from the PyCon crowd. Yeah. And interestingly. Since then, we've done some more analysis on the PyPI data and found that there's a few packages that have long lists of dependencies that may be skewing those numbers even further Okay, like, in, like what? In, favor, Do you have in favor of Linux. So, yeah. so there's one particular package that, that I, I won't name, but it's, it's one of the
0: major cloud providers' tools. All right, so if you grab it, and then it's going to grab 20 other things, so that counts as like 20 downloads from Linux or something like that, that right? Yeah, that counts oh. as... Well, it's going to count as a Linux download
1: for those, and we found... Th- that that particular package had a massive, massive spike on Linux for some reason. And I don't think anyone's dug into exactly why, but okay. it's, it's like in the tens of thousands of downloads a day, well beyond where any other reasonable package should be. Right, so, okay. so those numbers are, are still skewed, but, but they are saying it's majority Linux, whereas a conference is not majority Linux. I had a chat with the, the Anaconda folks to see what they could tell me about people downloading from Conda. Yeah,
0: I feel like they're a little more enterprise
1: focused and that might have a different crowd. They're a little more was, enterprise focused as well. You see the the percentage of Windows downloads increasing there, so it's roughly double what it is for Mac and Linux is still about half of the overall downloads. Okay. The PSF survey and and we've had two of these now, and I believe the the there's one going on right now. I think. Yeah, it'll that's
0: probably be over by the time we finish. <laughs> by the time okay. we release it, so it's a little bit. I wish I could. We could encourage people to take it, but it'll be great to look at the 2019 results. I'm, I suspect we'll see some interesting trends. Yeah,
1: so, so the interesting thing that happened with that is they changed the question slightly between the 2017 and the 2018 one. So in 2017, they didn't actually ask the question, and they looked at people's u- user agents to figure out which OS they were coming from. Right, right. And that one showed you know, half of all the survey respondents were on Windows, and fewer on Mac, fewer on Linux, and then, the, then there was a big gap, which some of us speculate it's probably Android and iOS phones. Yeah. Because uh, you can take the survey on whatever you're on, but half the people responding were on Windows, which means that's kind of like a max level, I feel yeah. like. But then the following year, they asked the question again, and but this time they let you choose multiple responses, and they say, which yeah. ones do you develop for? And so the interesting, the only thing that really changed between the two sets of data is that Windows is still 50%, and Linux went from about... 10% up to 60%.
0: Wow. And so people are deving on Windows but pushing to the cloud on, on Linux. My
1: hypothesis, and we haven't checked it, and hopefully the current survey is going to help clarify this, is yeah, people develop on Windows and deploy on Linux and or, or they work on Windows, yeah, de- deploy to Linux, and so you already have a much bigger chunk of Windows showing up there than you ever
0: see at a conference. How much do you think Docker influences this? Because Docker is like, I feel like it would overcount the Linux side of things because you so often recreate these images and they reinstall and reinstall, you know, like... Definitely, uh,
1: but virtual environments are going to be much the same thing. So yeah. I think there's there's a yeah. lot of repetition, but but I guess virtual environments are, are now cached for things like PyPI. So right, you're not exactly. actually going to count dip, the download yeah, again. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. But a fresh, like a fresh change of like a low-level part of a, a Docker image might as well, or CI as well, but CI is probably cached. I don't know. ultimately
1: the point that that i eventually got to with all these numbers is we don't have a good answer for how many people are using this like yeah. you go and look at at the editors that we also have numbers for so vs code pycharm and their majority windows uh, either slim or significant majority windows and smaller mac very very little linux and about all we can really say is that the numbers don't line up they definitely don't line up with what we see at a conference. And when you walk right. around PyCon and you come away going, literally everyone is running <laughs> on a Mac, then all we can say is we know that that's not true. Right. So right. I feel like conservatively, probably half the, the Python community, half the Python user base is running on Windows, either for development and deployment or just for development, then deploying to another platform. Sure. And that's, so the other stat that I pulled out just for fun because it's a big number uh, but it's obviously biased, so the python.org downloads, which is mostly where, the, mostly where Windows developers will get their Python from, and we see that in the stats, That's, that is vast majority Windows, but the number, it's, I ran some of the analysis for one month, uh, about, about a year ago now, and there was 20 million unique downloaders in that month, which is... The late- Windows... For Windows. yeah, And most estimates of the size of the Python community, like five to six million developers. And we got 20 million downloads for Windows in that month. So How interesting. So we don't know the exact numbers, but I think we can say that it's certainly not a minority of the Python community. I, I would, I'd estimate it's about half, maybe more. Yeah. And it's certainly a big number.
0: Yeah. It's, and that's about all I'm prepared to say concretely. Yeah, yeah, sure. And so, I mean, maybe one of the... This- the takeaways from this section is we need to treat the Windows dev story importantly in the Python community because a lot of people are doing that and they're either having a good experience and liking Python more or a bad experience and not feeling welcome.
1: Right, and so the thing that concerned me out of that is where, where, are, the, like, where are these developers at our conferences? Like yeah. We have all of these Python conferences all the time and, and the numbers vary, but there's... There is nowhere near a representative number of Windows devs coming to our Python conferences. And there's also not a representative amount of kind of pain and suffering that you hear online. Uh, I mean, I, this is my area. So I watch the Twitter feed for, you know, Python and Windows. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of pain out there for a variety of reasons. Uh, and so I just wonder how much is people try and get started using Python on Windows and give up or they just don't feel welcome because things are painful. And it seems like they're just not, you know, no one's aware of them. No one sees them. No one knows they're
0: there. Yeah. This portion of talk Python to me is brought to you by Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing support and scale that you need to take your project to the next level with 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise grade hardware, S3-compatible storage, and the next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance that you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today with a $20 credit, and you get access to native SSD storage, a 40-gigabit network, industry-leading processors, their revamped cloud manager, at cloud.linode.com, root access to your server, along with their newest API, and a Python CLI. Just visit talkpython.fm slash Linode when creating a new Linode account, and you'll automatically get $20 credit for your next project. Oh, and one last thing, they're hiring. Go to linode.com slash careers to find out more. Let them know that we sent you. How many of those do you think are students? I do have some
1: slightly more demographic data from the Python in the Windows store distribution so that that gives me a little bit more information there's some age banding and some regional information and that does certainly make it look like the majority of people installing python on windows are college students in the u.s and china primarily
0: okay oh that's pretty interesting so uh, yeah okay well and it might not be that they're developing on it they might just need it to run something as well they may just need it to run but given
1: how new the Windows Store distribution
0: is, it's kind of unlikely that you'll
1: find it unless you're looking for it. Right. Okay.
0: Yeah. So I guess the story is, here's the numbers that you're giving us. Right. We've got a lot of different sources and they all seem to point at generally the same trend. Now what?
1: What do we do about
0: that? Yeah.
1: Well, and, and so I was giving a conference talk, right? So I had to, you know, speak to the people in the room. You can... There's only so much value in getting up in front of a crowd of people and telling them that someone else has to do something. Yeah, like I, d- I don't like doing that. So so I was like, okay, what what pieces can the people here help with? Because it's no one's fault, really. It's like when a conference doesn't reflect the the general population for for its its area, it's really hard to say whose fault that is. But it's easy. I, I think it's easier to say, since you know, knowing who you are, who's here here are things you can do that will be net positive. Right. So PyCon, as, as we said, it's a lot of library developers, a lot of enthusiasts, it's people writing code, it's people publishing
0: code. People who are getting paid to do Python development already. So exactly. They're in a different demographic and, and whatnot to some degree as well, right? Right. And so from that, I'm like, well, okay.
1: These are the people who are potentially writing the libraries that, that just grate a bit on Windows. Like for one little reason don't work well for this Windows crowd, and maybe, you know, contributing to that, oh, the Python community doesn't really think about Windows. And so I built the talk around that and kind of went through some of the, the major kind of cross-platform mistakes or assumptions uh, that I see people make that don't actually translate cross-platform well. Python already does a fantastic job of, you know, hiding most of that. Right. And then there's some things that bleed through that, that can, you know, if you're not aware of them, then... You, you are going to make code that doesn't work well on other platforms. And the best part about it all is when I started going through those and, find, and you know, planning out the right way to do things, turned out they're all just best practices anyway. Right. And right, they make right. your code better on all platforms, right, more like, reliable Don't, don't everywhere.
0: treat paths as strings. Treat them as,
1: you know... Right, treat them as, as path objects. Yeah, yeah so, exactly. So, yeah, that's that's one of the big ones because... Most people are aware, you know, Python, uh, not Python, Windows uses backslashes to separate path segments and POSIX uses forward slashes. And so that's kind of an immediate difference where if you've written your code using the string functions and it's all, you know, string.split forward slash, that doesn't split anything no, on Windows. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's a bad time. Let's start the story of, like, what we can do on Windows, What you say is really is kind of like actually just best practices for Python code anyway, but... You know, we've got to get started by having Python on Windows. Yeah. Right? And you've done some interesting work there, right? And the fun thing is this, this actually happened between two of the times I gave
1: this talk. And so I had to go back and, and, and say, you know, you assume that this is true. And yeah, and now you're right because yeah. I fixed it in between. <laughs> so, so yeah. I, I fixed your assumption. People have, have kind of got the hang of installing Python from the Python.org installer. And one right. of the big differences that that has from if you install it on Mac or Linux is it doesn't put Python on path by default. And there if, is a
0: checkbox, but you gotta check it and you gotta know that it
1: matters. There's a checkbox which I really don't like. Like I put that there under protest. Okay. And I don't like it because when you put a directory on path in Windows, it's not the same thing as putting a sim link in kind of an already shared directory. So you do that on on Linux and you know you put it in the user's bin directory and Then it just shows up, and the only thing that they get access to is Python. But on Windows, when you do this, you're injecting an entire path with every single file in that directory.
0: All the executable stuff that's
1: hanging out with Python.exe, right? All the dynamic libraries. So if some other application tries to load the Python DLL, it might find the one that you put on path because that's how the resolution works on Windows. Right, right, right. And
0: maybe that's, like, version one of, I don't know, some C library and they are actually looking for version 2, and of course they're compiled against the header for version 2, so they are going to like hard crash because that's not going to line up and whatnot, yeah. right? It's, it's a big problem.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, so I, I'm not a fan of putting Python on path. That said, my, my fix for this, which I'll get to, is I'm, I'm very happy with. But it also doesn't come as like a Python 3.exe or a Python 3.7.exe. It would It would just be a Python.
0: Which goes against all of the instructions that are out there on how to run it. Right, all the getting started tutorials say type Python 3 this, pip 3 that. Yeah. Probably source is thrown in there or dot.
1: Oh, yeah, source activate, yeah. There's just all these kind of little rough differences. And the first few times I gave the talk, I pointed those out. The last time I gave the talk, I got to actually say, hey, there's a new package for this. There's a new installer for Python, which comes through the Microsoft Store it's still released by the python software foundation like it's exactly the same as the one that you get from python.org it just comes in different packaging and the nice thing about this is this one has a more posix like system for putting shortcuts on path so, okay so it already comes with it has a directory that's already on the user's path that only has essentially symlinks in it i see and so in there i was able to put a python3 oh, a python a python3 and a python3.7 or 3.8 shortcut that doesn't have any of the downsides of putting all the other directories on there as well. And so that now makes all of the commands available on Windows as well
0: as Mac and Linux
1: in exactly the same way.
0: Yeah, that, that's such a positive thing. So you can go there and you can now type Python 3 on Windows and it, it means basically the same thing. You don't have to be an admin on the box to install it, right? right. As yeah. long as you can get the store, it just lives on. You probably are not even affecting other users on that Windows system, Right. No, the
1: only impact it may have on other users is if they install Python from the store, then Windows will go, oh, I've already got this once. I'll give you the same one. Yeah. And, and it still separates everything by user, but it, it does save them the download. Right, right. But it's not, you're not going to break one of their apps by installing it. You can't install anything in their space. They can't install anything in yours. It's, yeah. it's a good setup for multi-user
0: Python. That's super cool. Another thing that's worth pointing out is even if you don't do that on Windows 10 now, if it's properly updated to the latest, and you type Python 3, it doesn't say Python not found or Python 3 not found, right? Right. That was
1: one of the big benefits of putting it in the store is it made it really easy for the Windows team to come around and say, well, what if we just put a shortcut in there? It's like everyone's been asking for years, you know, can you just put Python in Windows? And we figured out the best we could do without taking on a massive maintenance burden, which was, we'll just put a shortcut in there. And so you run Python, you run Python 3.0. And it'll bounce you to the store where it's then one click to actually get the Python and Python 3. Then you type it again, then you're good. Type it again, and you're good. And we're actually seeing literally thousands of people a day installing Python through that. And they,
0: they probably maybe didn't even know that that was what they needed to do. They just wanted to run Python. They typed it and it said, you don't have it, but click this button and you'll have it.
1: The, I've recommended it to a few kind of trainers and teachers, yeah. and they absolutely love it. Because yeah. they can now go into a classroom and say, just type Python 3. On your machine. See, what is it? What happens? And if it pops up with this, click install, and now type Python 3 again, and, and everyone in the room is ready to go.
0: Yeah. A lot of those training situations as well, those folks don't have permission to install you know, wide open MSIs and all sorts of stuff that will like shut down a class. You're yes. like, okay, the first thing we've got to do is install this. We can't install it. Well, this is going to be a real short presentation. <laughs> yeah, the next two hours are going to fly by. <laughs> exactly. Just, you just have to watch. All right. So I, th- I think we kind of started on the first thing is like, how do I run Python, right? Not, things are not always in the path. The, the path story is, is different. Typing Python 3 until recently used to be a problem they would run into. People would have to Google about like, well, why does Python 3 not work? How do I get Python 3? It says I have Python installed in like my installed apps, but I type Python 3 and it doesn't work. So I, I think people still need to be cognizant of that because even though the fix is now there, it's going to be a while before all the Windows machines live in that world, right?
1: Yeah, it, it always takes time to roll out new things. And hopefully over time, as more and more people see it, then we'll see more instructions. I'm really looking forward to people not posting new instructions every day on how to install Python. The old way, yeah, and we start seeing some more more people posting how to how to install it the new way.
0: Right here's the store. Click it.
1: Yeah, and and so in an effort to do that, we actually convinced some of the, the Microsoft documentation team to put our own how to install Python on Windows page up. Okay. So so I we'll have to double check the URL, but I think docs.microsoft.com/windows/python will get you to some of our getting started with Python on Windows page. That's pretty cool that you know we invested in writing up and and getting good steps and it'll take you all the way through to oh you're a student here's how to build your first game with Pygame. you're a system admin here's how to build here's how to write a script that'll do like some file scanning yeah so you know we're trying to to move the entire world forward rather than leaving everyone in the you know, here's how to install Python 3.4 instructions, which I still saw pop up recently.
0: Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I, I definitely am looking forward to a world where there's not a bifurcation of every step until you actually get to running your code is, is what you do on Mac and Win, uh, on Linux, is what you do on Windows, right? Like, uh, another thing that, that varies is PIP3, right?
1: Yeah, so PIP's always been a little bit better off because it would generate the, the versioned shortcuts. It's done that for quite a while. One of the downsides of the, the Windows Store installation is that you, can't, you can only add shortcuts into that directory if you're actually the installer itself. So I have to pre-declare all of those in the package. And it means that when you pip install a package, it can't update those sh- global shortcuts. And so they go into a directory that's not on your path. Pip these days will print a message saying, you should add this to your path. And if you do that, then you'll be just fine. Okay. But, but it does mean that most kind of command line tools that you might install with pip, you won't get to through the usual name. Right, like black or pipx or like, something like that? Exactly. Okay. And, and that's always been an issue that's always kind of run into problems here and there on Python. Yeah. And the recommendation for a long time, for for all platforms, in fact, has been to use python3-m and the name of that command rather than trying Python to use the Python knows where it is. Python knows exactly where it is. Yeah. And the other advantage is if you know like that's the Python you're working with. So we generally recommend this for pip as well because if you, pip, if you pip install something and then Python try and import it and your path is messed up and this can happen on any OS, it happens on Linux, happens on Mac, happens on Windows, then you'll go, why can't I import that package?
0: Right, You like, like you type pip instead of pip 3 and it accidentally goes into Python 2 because that's earlier or, exactly. or something like that, right? Yeah, and
1: so we... Definitely recommend, you know, Python 3-M pip, even for pip.
0: Yeah, Brett Cannon just wrote a big article about that, uh, talking about how uh, we recommend Python 3-M Yeah, and, and for all the different things. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Brilliant.org. Let me knock something off your holiday to-do list. Gifts. Spread the love to your loved ones by gifting them Brilliant. This really excites me because it's such a fun way to nurture curiosity build confidence and develop problem-solving skills crucial to school, job interviews, or to their career. Brilliant's thought-provoking content breaks up the complexities into bite-sized, understandable chunks that will lead them from curiosity to mastery. go to talkpython.fm/brilliant and grab a gift subscription to help your loved ones finish their day a little smarter this season. That's talkpython.fm/brilliant or just click the link in the show notes. I'll- call out some false assumptions that, that you, you had that people often make about writing code. So we touched on this first one a little bit, like everyone uses forward slash for path.
1: Yeah, I see this assumption pop up a lot and it normally looks like, you know, using the string functions. So string dot partition and just passing in a forward slash. That works fine as long as, you know, every platform you're on is using forward slashes,
0: but there's plenty that don't. I use the built in. Pathlib or os.path style to process that, even if I know it's only going to run on a POSIX system, because I don't want to have to deal with thinking about that, right? Yeah. As a string. There's, there's a lot of...
1: Python has about five different ways you can do this, but certainly the, the os.path module... Is very useful, and the nice thing about that is you can also import POSIX path directly or NT path directly mm-hmm. okay. if you know you need cross-platform behavior, If you like specific platform behavior. Okay, and so yeah, I've, very cool, yeah. I've definitely written code that uses OS.path for some things and POSIX path for other things because that's you know, going to look more like a URL or it's going to be sent to a different system. So you have that option there. But really, we have pathlib now, and we've had pathlib since, I think, Python 3.4. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just so much nicer.
0: Yeah, Pathlib's really nice. And yeah, but definitely not strings, right? Definitely not strings. Okay, uh, because I guess the, the tie back to Windows is right. Like, it will break on Windows. You should do it anytime, but it will ac- actually break, not just be less convenient. It will break because if you
1: get a Windows path, and so the thing that Windows makes a little more complicated here is if you give Windows a path that has forward slashes, it will go through and correct it for you yeah. most of the time. Yeah. Not all the time, but most of the time, it'll correct forward slashes to backslashes. But any path that it gives you, uh, or any path that a user gives you, is going to have backslashes in it, and you can't split on forward slash then. Yeah, it won't because works. you'll always get one element back, and that's probably not what you
0: wanted. No, that's not good. Also, root paths like are, are kind of funny, right? Like it could be weird maps or volumes or other stuff, right? Yeah, not just C colon backslash. It gets very
1: interesting. The kind of range of shortcuts for identifying a drive or a mount point. So there's the kind of internal system representation, which for a drive often looks like a a GUID, like it's a globally unique identifier, and no one's typing those. So we have a shortcut that's going to be like C colon or D colon. There's SMB shares, which are, you know, backslash, backslash, computer name, backslash, which part of this is the root of the drive. (laughs) It's like, if I'm dot dotting up the directory, how far do I go before I have to stop? Because it varies and it's different, and... The, the Python libraries yeah. know how to handle that. We've built that logic in. Yeah, so just don't use strings for path.
0: Don't use strings for path. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> use pathlib. Speaking of paths, tilde, tilde. tilde slash is always good. That gets me home, right? There's, there's no place like tilde slash. <laughs> no place like tilde slash. <laughs> I, yeah, people love putting their configuration files
1: in tilde slash. Yeah. And, you know, when, so Windows doesn't have tilde. Like, tilde is just a path character. You can, yeah. you can put that anywhere you want. And it's just another part of the name. That lives in the working directory. Right. That <laughs> lives exactly where you are right now. Yeah. is where your heart is, not where you want to be. But people do make the, you know, they do very quickly figure out, oh, I should be using the user profile environment variable or figure out the home directory some other way to do that. But even that, depending on what you're planning to use it for, doesn't necessarily line up. Like you see tilde slash, you know, dot and something for a lot of configuration files on, on Linux but on Windows, that just gets thrown into the root of the user's directory, which actually has a set of subdirectories for different purposes. And you start digging down, uh, particularly like, for like app data, local app data, roaming, all that kind of stuff. And they all have different reasons and different behaviors. Yeah, so, yeah. like app data roaming will actually propagate between different machines on a network if if that's configured for that. So anything you put there is going to be copied. Or maybe copied onto a network share and automatically copied down if the user logs in somewhere else, which is really handy, but if you're using it for you know, 10 gigabytes worth of log files, then everyone's going to be real upset about saturating the network and login taking so long.
0: yeah, exactly. the domain controller is out of disk space we don't know why or wherever it gets stored. but the other thing is that's a very hidden directory to
1: users like it yeah. isn't it's about as hidden as you know a dot file yeah but if you're creating something that you want the user to see and modify then there's, they have a documents folder for that. And may, you probably want a subdirectory in that documents folder anyway, just for organizational purposes. And so you start looking at a very different layout from where you would keep all of this stuff on, on a POSIX-based yeah. system. It, it
0: makes me crazy when every program thinks its projects folder needs to live in the root of my user directory. Like, <laughs> yeah, it yeah. wouldn't That's, need to be topmost. Come on. It doesn't need to be top, ta- And that doesn't even help on Windows because it's
1: such a pain to get there Yeah, because all of the shortcuts go deeper. Yeah. It's like documents is really easy to get to. Pictures is really <laughs> easy to get to. Videos is real. That random folder you created is very hard to
0: get to. If you gotta don't use know the how. address bar of the file stuff, yeah, for sure. So the fix for all the path problems were to use some of the built-in path libraries. What's the fix for this?
1: So this one, the the recommendation I have is to use aptos, which is is a module made for this purpose. Uh, it's slightly opinionated, so. You will see you know, good programs not behaving exactly like it does, but it's, it's a very simple module. It's a single file, so you may even just copy it into your project and keep it around, but it lets you query for a specific kind of purpose, and so you can say, give me the user's data directory, give me the user's uh-huh. configuration directory, give me a cache give directory. Give me the documents directory. Yeah, I believe it will give you the documents directory. Um, I think that may be one of the ones that's missing. Okay, well, you could uh, obviously get the home directory and add documents. And that's my exactly it. That one's not too difficult to, to add in if, if you find yourself needing that. But it does it cross-platform. So you import the module and you query for a directory, and it will pick depending on what platform you're on and give you a sensible layout that's not going to surprise, not going to upset anyone who's using it.
0: Yeah, that's great. Strings, strings are also interesting. String. Well, yeah. Unicode. And
1: Unicode. Unicode is the interesting thing. Yes. I had this section of my talk got better and better every time I gave it because people came and gave me more context and more information. Yeah, all right. But, but let, let, let me pose you, a, you know, a trivia question here. Which was invented first or which was released first? Windows 1.0 or the Unicode standard? I would initially guess Unicode, but I'm, I'm thinking this might not be right. You'd, you'd think so. Unicode has been around for a long it's time. Stuff but, in quotes, it doesn't seem like that's <laughs> totally new. It seems like that should have yeah. been right at the beginning. It should have been. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately not. Windows came out first. There were no emojis. which means That's the problem. They, they were not, yeah, no one, need, no one wanted emojis at that point yet. But because Windows came out first, they had to handle internationalization without Unicode, and which right. is why the code page system is there. And there were, there were previous systems that were already using it, so it was, this well predates Unicode regardless. But it was released in Windows, and about six years before Unicode even came out, it was released in Windows. Which means that, you know, you have this very ingrained system of code pages and 8-bit character encodings that now you have a compatibility burden. Yeah. And so when Unicode did come out, then it just wasn't possible to
0: go back and say, well, forget all of that. We're going to switch right. to Unicode. Because so much of it was at the C level where you pass char pointers. Yeah. The char pointers is the wrong size for Unicode.
1: And so, okay, trivia question number two. Which came first, UTF-8 or UTF-16?
0: You start with a smaller one, right? You so, start with a
1: smaller yeah. UTF-8? i <laughs> uh, afraid not. UTF-16, in fact, UCS-2. So the two-byte character encoding was the first one. Yeah. And turns out Windows did actually go, oh, we should adopt this because this is now the standard. And that's why the Unicode encoding is two bytes throughout Windows because that was the official standard. At the time, Windows said, oh, hey, let's do this. And then UTF-8 came, it was proposed like four or five years later, and eventually, and now that's the standard. And I have no doubt that if Windows kind of restarted... It would just be pure UTF-8. It would, it would just be pure UTF-8, absolutely. It's the, you do get some bloat on a number of languages and a number of very important languages to Windows. So arguably, there's a kind of equalization of kind of memory wastage for certain character sets. Mm-hmm. If, if you're in English, then yeah, UTF-8 is vastly more efficient. But as soon as you get into kind of... Many of the Asian languages and some of the European languages, the 16-bit... The it, it takes
0: more bytes to actually do the UTF-8 stuff?
1: You end up with every single character taking four or five UTF-8 bytes. Okay. and That can be a lot. Whereas it would only be one, or, or in some cases, two UTF-16 words, Yeah, which you know, averages out to be smaller. So maybe there's a case for either of those, but just for historical reasons, Windows has ended up with a UTF-16 as kind of the default... Uh, choice of unicode and there's no real way to go back and undo that at this point without massively disrupting the entire ecosystem no one's
0: rewriting windows with a breaking changes that big
1: yeah and so what that leads to as far as python's concerned is a kind of fundamental difference in how paths get passed around as strings because on posix it's bytes and the lowest level it's bytes and when it comes into Python, then you can keep it as bytes and pass it back out as bytes, and kind of make sure that nothing changes and gets disrupted in the way there. And Windows has the APIs for that, but it's doing a silent conversion in the background through the old legacy code page okay. system, which can lose data. It can absolutely lose data, and and it's it seems semi-random. Uh, this was a big Python two problem. Was it would do this, and so right. you get you this get is one these, of the major breaking changes from two to three. Honestly, right.
0: The, like in terms of
1: the effect that it had. In terms of the, yeah, in terms of the effect, but, but it's also one of the most positive ones because I, I heard from many, many students in particular sure. Sure. who, who, you know, logged into Windows with their name and their name is, is, you know, Chinese characters or Korean characters or, yeah. you know, yeah. it's a language that Python 2 could not support. And sometimes they do it on machines where the code page, so the legacy support for Windows can't handle it either. <laughs> I can't and, even say my name. Uh, they yeah that's crazy they couldn't yeah, that they could even feel good print their own it made them feel terrible yeah uh, so i'm you know I, the the break for that for python 3 was painful but then it you have needed but then you have a handful of other libraries that still use bytes for paths because it's more performant in their context but it's also going to break these people again even on python 3 if you're forcing all the file system stuff to go through this arbitrary encoding and so the preferred one is to just use string on windows Right, we yes. STR, works great. Yes, STR instead of bytes. Yeah. And in fact, it works fine on POSIX as well. We implemented on that side, the conversion for file system stuff to be to perfectly round trip. So even if there's characters in paths that, you know, if you converted to text would be corrupt and it would throw exceptions, we actually preserve those and they'll pass back in. So there's a little bit of a
0: performance impact, but... But it'd be better to be slow and right than fast and wrong. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nice. And that's a super easy fix, just like use string. Well, it's
1: never quite as easy as just use <laughs> string. But where it gets really interesting is if you're doing things like reading in a list of files of the file system and writing it out to another file, because you're in control of that encoding. So Python like, has not and probably will not change the default encoding of a file.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Where, so, you know, you open a file to write text to it. What is the, it. Default uh, the default encoding? The default is the system locale, typically. Okay. Which for, mo- which for most non Windows users these days is UTF 8. Yeah. And for every Windows user is whatever the legacy encoding is. And this is a backwards compatibility thing. We would love to change it to be UTF 8 by default, but now you can't read in the file that you wrote with the previous version of Python. And
0: that. Yeah, it's tricky. That's, just <laughs> that, that, that's a hard sell. It's very disruptive. Very disruptive. And concerning, like, what do you mean my file is corrupted? Yeah. Yeah, that won't and, feel good.
1: Yeah, and so even opening a file to write to, if you want it in UTF-8, then you should just specify yeah, that.
0: Yeah, I, I always put UTF-8. I wasn't, I wasn't sure what i get if I don't put that, though. Yeah, you, you will get... It's not, it's not entirely random. Yeah, but it's, it's not entirely the same, always. It's not a
1: complete encoding. Okay. So there, there will be characters that can't be written out in that.
0: All right, well, let's maybe round this out with what, one more false assumption here. We're sitting here looking at my very fancy Surface Book Pro. No, I mean MacBook Pro. (laughs) And I'm a library developer, and maybe I I can't test on Windows. Like I'm sympathetic. Like half of my users are Windows developers, but I, I can't verify whether my library works or not. Yeah, and I get this one. Like
1: it's it's very easy to to like it's or it's not very easy to get a Windows setup necessarily. That it's very hard to switch kind of the platform you're used to, to another one just for the sake of being able to address all of your users. But at the same time, that's not, that, that's like kind of drawing the line too close. And it's like, you know, I'm aware of a problem and I'm aware that I need to solve it. And I think of one solution and that's too hard. And so I stop thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, that's hard. So and no. that's, and, and that's, that's kind of what I see happen occasionally here. And it just, you know, it makes me, you know, just choke up a little bit because I'm like, that's. <laughs> That's, that's just bad and lazy. Yeah, and, so close. Like, and we have so many well, better
0: options these days. And it's really saying, thanks, but you're not welcome here to like half the users. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I could get it 10 years ago because 10 years ago, we didn't have GitHub. Or if we did have GitHub, we didn't have the reach of GitHub like we do now. Right. Or, or Azure
0: Pipelines or all the CI. Azure Pipelines, or, like I their, have,
1: GitHub Actions. We didn't have all of these things where... You can either set up to do it automatically and not need to own the machine yourself. And we didn't have the reach to be able to say, hey, I need help with this. Can someone come and help me test on Windows? Because that's, that's how it yeah. always happened, essentially. Uh, honestly,
0: I think the hardest one to, if it's not you, the hardest one to test for is Mac. Yeah. Right? Because th- I, I test none of my stuff on Mac. <laughs> 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 that's, so, not, that's not quite true, but I the, do it all through CI. Yeah, exactly. I, but it's tougher to get uh, CI for Mac. It, it is. Yeah, it is, but, but Windows but these and days, Linux are pretty, pretty easy to get that. They're, they're pretty days. easy.
1: And Azure Pipelines and GitHub Actions both have Windows, Mac, and Linux. And I think at this point they have a, multiple choices for all of those. Okay. So you can so you do like
0: Mojave versus Catalina
1: I think, or Windows yeah, 7 versus 10 or something? I don't think we're offering Windows 7 as an option on any of those. You, you don't want to encourage that? The builds actually run on Windows Server, not even Windows Client. So you, so you do get a choice between Windows Server 2016 and 2019 uh, and choice of like the Visual Studio version. Which is primarily, you know, people should just be on the latest for the most part. Python Python stuff is not that involved in, in the build tool set to really need to, you know, I must stay on the old one anymore. We made sure that Python works with future builds as well. So you can uh-huh. build for old versions of Python with newer tools now. Yeah, so that's cool. So the options uh, and the opportunities there is, is really good. And they're all free. Like, it doesn't cost anything to to just put on your page, I'm looking for someone to help with Windows maintenance, and it doesn't cost anything for an open source project to be on GitHub Actions.
0: Right, and, and people are probably excited if they're working on Windows. They're like, oh, this is a really easy way for me to contribute to this project. Yeah. Right? Like, all I got to do is sort of, like, run the test and, and just try a few things out. And
1: fix You'll the- get more contributors because you're not telling them, you have to switch to Linux to contribute to my project because you've got the CI running on Linux as well. Right. So it opens up your pool of contributors and it helps with releases. One of the biggest problems we see every time we release an update to Python. So Python 3.8 came out, and we're seeing this happen a bit. Uh, is packages don't have wheels ready. They don't have builds that, like they're right. not actually ready for Python 3.8. And once you've got a CI setup going,
0: it's which, almost which automatic. Take, yeah,
1: it's almost automatic as soon as the CI service has that version of Python on there or has a way to to get it sooner. And you know we're we're working on making that happen faster then it's very easy to m- just spin another build and release that. And yeah. all of your users are now successful at installing your package. Good advice. So
0: that pretty much wraps it up. You want to give us the, uh, the quick summary? The quick summary, The yeah. checklist? You, you had a checklist. Like, I, you don't have to remember all this. Here's the checklist of what you got to do.
1: Yeah, it, it annoys me when I see people holding their phones up at me while I'm speaking because all of my slides build up. Yeah. And so like there'll be stuff on the slide that's bad, and a big red line is about to ap- appear through it, and someone's already <laughs> yeah, taking a photo. share it on social media no. And I'm like, no, no, wait, wait, wait until it gets crossed out. Yeah, so I told everyone to wait for the checklist at the end of the talk because I did want to make this really actionable and really easy for people to follow up. So, so the things that I would recommend you check just before the next release of your project, anytime you feel like it, does the dash M option work on it? So if you've got a script entry point, can you also start your project running by typing python3-m name of your project and document it. Tell your users this is how you can use it. Yeah. Are you manipulating paths by hand anywhere? Like, do you have any dot .split instead of os.path.split or pathlib
0: objects? I like this recommendation because it's, it's just like you should do the thing that's easier and safer and you'll be, you'll be in good shape.
1: Yeah. Do I put configuration in weird places, which, you know, arbitrary paths for storing stuff. It can make a mess, but it can, you, know, you can lose information and, and make things a little harder to find. Are you still using bytes for strings? If you've gotten out of Python 2 and into Python 3, then there's no need to do that anymore. That was the problem that we were trying to move people off, so yep. feel free to stop. You know, just use the string type. The string type is very optimized for what it does. And do you have you know, continuous integration tools or collaborators on your project? Like, If it's just you on the project, and the problem is that you are not representative of your entire audience. No one person can be. Yeah, no matter who
0: you are or what you do, yeah. No,
1: no matter who you are, there are people out there who are using your code who are doing things differently from you. And with continuous integration tools, GitHub Actions, Azure Pipelines, you can kind of have automated systems that look like more of your users, but just welcoming more people into to contribute and collaborate. Even if it's just, hey, I'll email you when I'm about to do a release, can you run you know, your tests on it?
0: And a lot more people are willing to do that than, than you think. Yeah. All right. Well, it's, it's all good advice. And I, I definitely think the stats that you laid out are, are pretty interesting. So. Thanks. Yeah. It's not the world we often see around us, but it's, it's the world as it is. At least as good as the stats can measure from what we're using now. Cool. All right. Well, before we wrap up the show, let me ask you the final two questions. If you're going to write some Python code, what editor do you use?
1: I'm bouncing between editors all the time right now. You know, what,
0: what's in the orbit I that use, you're hitting?
1: I use Visual Studio until it annoys me, then I use Visual Studio code until it annoys me, then I use Notepad 2 until it annoys me, then I go back to Visual Studio, and that's yeah, my that, code. That's the three-body
0: problem, the three-editor problem? <laughs> the
1: three-editor problem,
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah, Indeed. And then notable PyPI package. Oh. What have you come across lately that's like, oh, this is, this is pretty amazing? Oh, I forgot this question was going to
1: be here, so I hadn't thought about it. Yeah, and I'm, see, this is like... Uh, on the spot. On, the, on yeah. the spot. What was I? I was playing with something the other day that I... Really enjoyed. While you're here thinking, I'll tell you about one that I found recently
0: that I thought was kind of cool is HTTPX. Oh yes, okay. I do I do like that one. I like it because it's request compatible, but it also does HTTP two and async, and then there's also some like intermediate like simpler async parallelism built in. It's it's a cool one. I've been helping
1: promote that one. That's it, it's in its early stages. Like they're, they're looking for for contributors who are interested in the next big HTTP project. So I'm excited about that one. I guess I can't claim it.
0: Yeah, you claim it. Go ahead. I can claim it? Okay, claim it. we both like HTTPX. Right, it's a good <laughs> one. Yeah, it, it is early days and it could use some help, but uh, I like it as well. I think it's got promise. Cool. All right. Well, Steve, final call to action. People are working their packages or working on their non-Windows machines. What can they do to welcome the Windows people? I think it's
1: literally just that. Like, welcome the Windows people. You know, I gave a few simple things you can do to make them feel welcome, but it, it really just is. This also works on Windows, or if it doesn't, we want it to, you know, please please help. Yeah, they got the checklist. Yep. All right. Well, thanks for being
0: here. Great. Thanks. Yep, for- bye. Bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Our guest on this episode was Steve Dower, and it's been brought to you by Linode and Brilliant.org. Start your next Python project on Linode's state-of-the-art cloud service. Just visit TalkPython.fm slash Linode, L-I-N-O-D-E. You'll automatically get a $20 credit when you create a new account. Brilliant.org encourages you to give the gift of critical thought and knowledge. Visit TalkPython.fm slash Brilliant and grab a gift subscription to help your loved ones finish their day a little smarter this season. Want to level up your Python? If you're just getting started, try my Python Jumpstart by Building 10 Apps course. Or if you're looking for something more advanced, check out our new async course that digs into all the different types of async programming you can do in Python. And of course, if you're interested in more than one of these, be sure to check out our Everything Bundle. It's like a subscription that never expires. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm.